Welcome to episode 17 of Spinal Tap Minute, the podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and none more black eyes the movie This is Spinal Tap, one magnificent minute at a time. I'm Heidi Bennett of HeidiBennett.com. And I'm Sean German of 5MinutesOfMime.com. And joining us once again today, uh, welcome back to our special guest from the Airport Minute and soon to premiere Rocketeer Minute. Jim O'Kane. Hi, gang. Jim. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate that very much. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun talking about this uh, particular movie. It's definitely a favorite of mine. It gets some quite a bit of replay on the. I think there's probably some scuff marks on the DVD from it being in <laughs> a, a couple of times. And, oh uh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, welcome back and uh, welcome back to our listeners for minute seventeen. We begin minute seventeen with uh, the end of of Ian and David correcting uh, Nigel on the difference between sexy and sexist, and uh, Bobby telling us a little bit about which stores are refusing to carry Smell the Glove. We end with uh, Marty and David, uh, excuse me, Marty interviewing David and Nigel in a, looks like a deli or some kind of restaurant. In between, we get a little bit of talk about the uh, the cover of the album, and we find out David and Nigel were schoolmates. So nice. what do we, Yeah. Nice I have an initial question on, mm-hmm. on this. Uh, right when we get off, uh, Bobby's talking about the store, the decisions with the stores that aren't going to carry it. And they said Sears and Kmart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, can remember, I can remember Kmart having a record department, but I do not recall ever buying a record at Sears. I, I just don't, I, I can't even picture where they would keep records in that store. It, it was even back in the 80s. You know, there was there was the electronics section, which was TVs and, and stereos and stuff. But I don't recall them ever carrying LPs. Yeah, I that gave me pause as well. Um, I definitely remember. I remember the Sears catalog mm-hmm. more than I remember going into a Sears. Well, um, yeah, there was the the Wish Book with the mm-hmm. toys every December. But yeah, I think you're right. They they had stereo equipment and TVs because even more recently, thinking about CDs or, or DVDs. Yeah, they're they're more the hardware side than the software. Yeah, I, I mean at at the time, 1982. For some reason, I know a lot about Sears, <laughs> the, his, the history of Sears advertising. And at this time, they were doing the catchphrase that you probably remember was "There's more for your life at Sears," mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was before the softer side of Sears. But the uh, "There's more for your life at Sears," they would show you. Um, they, they would show you the automotive section. They would show you the Yvonne Gulligan uh, clothing section. Remember that? <laughs> remember she used to yeah. sell clothes. Oh my gosh! And Cheryl Teagues. Cheryl Teagues was back there. And then they would show you. Um, the electronics department, which was usually Atari, they sold a lot of like Atari equipment uh, plugged into TVs and you could, you know, send the kids back there to play on their 2600s while mom and dad went shopping for batteries and uh, pantsuits respectively. Mm-hmm. But never any mention of uh, of LPs on that thing. I, I mean, at the time, I, I, the regional ones that I can think of would be like Sam Goodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That would be where you'd go to, to pick up a record. Yeah. And this reminded me of actually, I lived... Let's see, I lived in Grass Valley at this time, I believe. Grass Valley, California, um, the foothills. Yeah, so you'd have Tower and, Records. Well, right. not up there, though. But um, yeah, if we if we went to Sacramento or, or uh, San Francisco, certainly um, Tower Records started in Sacramento. But mm-hmm. up there, I remember um, th- this minute reminded me of uh, we had um wasn't a department store. It was almost like a... It was called Ben Franklin. 
Oh, Ben Franklin, sure, that was like a craft store and things like that, but they also yeah. had they also had different thing. Yeah, it was it was kind of a if a general it was sort store of a hodgepodge. The, yeah, yeah, general store kind of hodgepodge. But it yeah. I remember going in there with my mom. Why I remember buying an album there is because I bought a Steve Martin album ah. and it had that explicit Ooh. tag on it. And I remember saying, hey, mom, you know, so my mom had to buy it for me, but she knew I was, a, you know, a mature teenager that could handle explicit material. Naughty words from Martin, yeah. But I also, I had bought that and also a, a ACDC with that I've Got Big Balls album on it. Mm -hmm. And remember her, remember, I remember playing it thinking it was ridiculous and my mom laughing so hard and going this is silly this is so silly <laughs> but yeah I, so yeah in grass valley there was actually a great record shop called foggy mountain music and the guys that that worked at that that was like a little, the independent record store they had that's where i learned about peter gabriel and some of the other more off Stuff that got a little bit more on the alternative side of things, but yeah, that's where I got my explicit album was at the. Oh, you know, it's California. I, I can't think of a better place to go get records. I back around the same time, I can remember um, I had a cousin in in San Francisco, and I go visit. He worked for American Express, and he had a huge house up in Telegraph Hill, and uh, I'd go go visit, and then go over to Berkeley, and Berkeley had streets I, i'm i'm not i'm not kidding like there were like it was like an entire street of of new records and vintage records and you could go through i mean i can remember spending hours going through bins over there the big old uh you know peach peach boxes and, and going through and looking through all these bins of of old albums i used to go look for old comedy albums and stuff which mm. generally were kind of hard to find but you know you could find old money python stuff uh things from you know shecky green and um, <laughs> uh, alan sherman music and all that kind of jazz uh, I used to be very into Firesign Theater, and I'd find some of their earlier yeah. pre-Columbia stuff. And it was all over Berkeley, and that was like mecca for, for finding old records. I don't know if it's if it's still like that. Well, I guess I guess vinyl is now a, a hipster thing, so I guess it's still – they're probably it's still back. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's actually some great uh, record stores in, in Sacramento that have opened up over the last few years that um, a couple of the owners, and it's so fun to see them – unearthing old stuff and you know newer releases too but mostly vintage vintage vinyl and it's it's great to be able to go through and have that feeling of yeah going through the bins your fingers passing across the tops of the records there, and finding there, a gem unexpected mm -hmm. gem there's nothing like a good grimy record store that it, everything everything has kind of a little bit of like there's been a lot of hands on the, on the boxes. <laughs> it's just kind of the the woods bent you know like like kind of smoothed over with so many people just leaning their palms as they're moving the as they're moving their hands through the stacks. One of my favorite rec record stores uh, was in Austin, Texas. I went to uh, the University of Texas, and uh, I was at a place. It was a, a classic place there called Inner Sanctum Records, and it was just this tight little room. With uh, you know, floor to ceiling records everywhere, barely cataloged. You could, you know, you just kind of start <laughs> in one corner and work your way to the other side. But the uh, the Go Go's at the time had just started doing national tours, and one of the places that they decided to play at was in the record store. I was, and I happened to be in the record store when they were they they had set up, and there, you know, here's the Go Go's playing wow. in a, in a room that's little bigger than say a. Small McDonald's, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. so, and 
you know, they start playing really loud and, you know, we got the beat, that kind of stuff. And it was just amazing that this, if you've ever seen the movie Empire Records, it's like that. It was just a very unusual thing. And I, I miss those days of independent shops like that where you could go, you know, find music that was nowhere else. Well, I guess the independent record store now is iTunes, um, where everybody can <laughs> post, post whatever they want. But, I, you know, it was, it was just kind of a fun time being back then in the grimy part. But I would think they would carry, they would probably carry uh, a record like Spinal Tap no matter what the cover was. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, the other stuff that we've got going on here is uh, we've got Bobby and, and Ian yeah. talking about the the decision, Dennis's decision. And I talk about, Jim, you were talking last time about uh, or last minute about how watchable and rewatchable these minutes are. And to me, this is the part that cracks me up every single time is when Bobby says, money talks and bullshit walks and then ian gives this incredible face right there at second 20 it's just what the fuck <laughs> you know just yeah. like what are you talking about and i i think that's my when when i think about this movie just shorthand of it that's one of the little things that little nuggets of this movie i love is his yeah. his reaction to her saying those words well, and we get to see that good back and forth because, you know, she's giving it to him and then he comes back with, you know, just shove it right down their throats. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he's kind of, he thinks he's the alpha male. Right. But then Bobby just alpha right back at him. <laughs> yeah, she, she's obviously in charge of this whole situation and nothing he says is going to change it. She is, to use a... Uh, <laughs> To use a, a Game of Thrones uh, uh, reference, she's the hand of Sir Dennis, and then mm. you know that that's where she she's gonna go. Yeah, and uh, what a what a great acting job by Fran Drescher. I just love dishing it out the way she's just pushing back at him. Yeah, and, uh, she doesn't even break a sweat. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, and she, and get good- she she's not even mad. She's just saying, "Look, this is how it is, and you're gonna right. you know, get over it." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you said she's the hand, and she also has the hand. You yeah. know, she's totally, yeah, she's yeah. totally in control. Yeah, Ian has no hand. To, uh, no, but but he's do but he's doing that uh, Karate Kid uh, crane maneuver when, when he's, <laughs> he's enunciating every little piece with his with his hand making those little airplane uh, shapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's a good a good. Uh, microcosm of, of their relationship and you know ian's ian represents the band but bobby represents the record company and and maybe they they have a common goal they want the tour to be success and lots of albums to get sold and everyone makes money um but they're coming at it from different directions and they have those those different interests yeah and she's dealing with the fact that their their major outlets are saying no so anything that they say it's not going to happen whatever right Whatever Mr. Sears and Roebuck say, that, that's where it goes. <laughs> right. Even if they're not yeah. selling albums, they're, <laughs> they're going to listen to them. Yeah, and, and it, like uh, as, as Jerry Porter uh, pointed out when he was a guest on the show, at this point in, in the music industry, the band is touring to support the album. The, the purpose of the tour is to sell records. And yeah, if the records can't get in the store... Then, then what's the point of the whole thing? And I'll also mention, so they talk about uh, just a little background. Uh, Ian talks, or Bobby talks about if the first album had been a hit. So this is actually, so Spinal Tap themselves, as we discussed, they've been around forever. They're 
they're old men by rock and roll standards at this point. But Smell the Glove is actually just their second album with Polymer Records. And the first album was Shark Sandwich, uh, which came out in 1980. I think the only song that most of us would know, or any of us would know from Shark Sandwich is Sex Farm, Mm. uh, which we hear them perform later in the movie. Um, That's probably the biggest hit from, from Shark Sandwich. There's one other noteworthy track or another track, one other track that I found noteworthy from Shark Sandwich, which is Throb Detector. (laughs) (laughs) And aside from the uh, unusual, I'll say, name, that's also, it's a disco song. Hmm. And we, we talked about how flexible artistically Spinal Tap is and, and how they're, they've been able to evolve as music styles have changed from the early and mid 60s through the 70s and now kind of the hair metal days of, of the early 80s. And once again, they're, they're a little bit behind the ball. And it's, it's not entirely unusual. Disco was huge for, for folks that weren't around in, in the late 70s. And a lot of bands that you wouldn't think of as disco bands whether a reflection of them just doing what they're hearing, whether a, a money grab to kind of jump on the latest craze, whether it's pressure from the record company. A lot of bands that weren't disco bands had a disco song or a sure. disco or a more disco-y, more dancey album during that time period. But that time period would have been 77, 78 around then. Well, uh, and and it would can it would continue too. I mean, like the the most familiar one would probably be the Some Girls album by uh, the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones mm-hmm. But yeah. they their follow up album to that Voodoo Lounge was also heavy disco. There was a lot of you know the four four beat, and and if you think about a band like a Bee Gees, like Bee Gees, who are known for disco, mm-hmm. before that they were they were completely like uh, you know the the Flower People, right, um, yeah. right, Flower Children, Flower Children. Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, the, well, yeah, and, but listen to what the flower people say. Yes, is what is <laughs> yeah. what I thought you were referring. Yeah, that, to. yeah, that, that's what I meant. I mean, that that's yeah. If if you listen to songs like uh, Massachusetts or, or I started a joke, that's the BG yeah. sound of the '60s. But yeah. by Saturday Night Fever, they had to completely redesign themselves so that they could sell 45s. Mm-hmm. And you know, here we are with Spinal Tap trying to rediscover themselves and figure. And they're still, you know, they're going on this. Uh, it's hard rock. You know, they're, they're trying to go in the mold of uh, ACDC, White Snake, that kind of uh, stuff uh, after being, uh, you know, going from Skiffle to, uh, to, to the 60s, uh, you know, into, into glam hair bands. The one thing that keeps, that keeps missing in this entire, uh, that I think the only misstep in the documentary, but they, I guess they had to ignore it because it wasn't, it wasn't that much of a, an influence as it would be say a year after, if they had made this a year after mm-hmm. is there's no MTV at all. There's no, there's no sign of, of using video as a sales tool. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's the only anachronism in the thing. Although, you know, things like Polymer Records, they might not have realized that the place to put their bands so that they would get some, you know, airtime is to put them on video and then let, let the video drive the, uh, right. the radio stuff. Right. Interesting. You know, that was my deepest thought about this. <laughs> well, no, that just made me think of like if they were trying to promote this album and that that album cover yeah what would they want to do in the video you know (laughs) what kind of where do you go well i mean you go yeah you go with um like the cars stuff Uh, if you think of cars uh their videos didn't match any like their 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 covers look like vargas 
you know, Vargas right. uh, pinup yeah. girls, but it right. wasn't that way in their uh, in their videos. So they they were still trying to feel their way around, and you know, just stuff. It, it was just the weirdest. The bands that weren't making it were these older bands, you know, REO mm-hmm. Speedwagon, trying to catch catch the stuff that. They didn't. They didn't have a TV faces. So they do, it, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, the, the the audience that they had kind of oh, they look like this. I don't know if one of those, you know. And then you, but then you had like Huey Lewis and the News, which was pretty telegenic. They were they were a telegenic band, and they had you know they had started out as a San Francisco area band, but they hit nationwide by heavily promoting themselves on places like MTV and HBO uh, Video Jukebox, things like that. So, but that's the only big element that's missing from the Spinal Tap documentary where polymer would have pushed them at the time is probably to make videos yeah so yeah there's no hint so they're doing this documentary but there's no hint that it's you know it's it's this is marty kind of on his own there's there's no real support from the record company for the movie and there's no talk of like using you know having him film one of the performances to make a video or or something like that well Yesterday, I was confessing, so to speak, that I was what I am watching this minute by minute that I'm not watching it from beginning to end mm-hmm. first. But isn't there a video later on towards the end of the movie? Well, we get there's different clips of them. You know, there's on the uh, Jamboree Bop and. But I get, mean, like a modern. Was, was Sex Farm a uh, was that a was that a video? I, I can't recall now. I'm just trying to remember. And I just watched this last night. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know because that's that's they well when they're performing a, that they're that's at feature. that's at the Air Force Base, right? Yeah, that, that, yeah. But I don't recall a. And I think on the special on the special features part there is a there is a video, but I don't think it's part of the documentary. Hmm. Um, well, my memory is. Now I'm gonna have to watch this again. So yeah, because I got <laughs> I remember, or maybe it's something right after the credits or something. I don't know. I feel like it's something I've seen as often as I've seen the movie. So I guess I'll have to wait and find out as we keep going. In, in a way, in a way, this is. I mean, this is kind of symptomatic. Is um, when Rob Reiner was making this, the world was changing under their feet, and they didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the videos at the time were. We're on show, you know, like on premium channels, or they they'd show them after the midnight special on NBC. You'd see right. a, a roll up of a bunch of videos. But the I can I can remember in the early '80s watching HBO's video jukebox. I forget what the Showtime equivalent was of that, but they mm. they just dropped them in between movies. And uh, I I can remember watching MTV August first, nineteen eighty one. Was it eighty one or eighty two? It was eighty one when when MTV first premiered. The only reason that I had it was because my particular apartment complex had a had a satellite dish that that mm-hmm. got MTV. But most of the people in in Austin where I was living didn't get MTV, so we were like the only apartment house that ever saw these videos. Hmm. But I think once you saw MTV and realized how earth shaking what a, what a change it was, mm-hmm. maybe maybe Rob Reiner hadn't, or maybe they couldn't figure out how to fit it into the documentary because it wouldn't it really wouldn't go as a uh, it would it would have changed the the whole plot of this movie. Right. Yeah, and we also have talked a little bit about how these guys are a bit behind the times too. You know, yeah. the band itself, so that kind of fits in. Yeah, they're not yeah, the, so they're they'll, not the they'll be, you know, right around the time when when MTV segues from showing you know primarily videos and and concerts when they segue into you know reality TV and, and you know uh, real world and, and jackass and that kind of things. That's the time when Spinal Tap's going to jump into videos. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They're, they're always a little late to the party. 
Uh, changing the subject slightly, this is this is a problem. <laughs> we uh, at, I think we know where this next one's going. But at second thirty three, we do finally get the uh, uh, the herpes connection between <laughs> the two lads. They they share the same blisters. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get the, the not a, not a, not exactly a, not exactly a high popcorn sales moment. No, <laughs> totally. Although I still would venture to guess as a as a female fan that I still find them pretty cute, even with those <laughs> herpes just, sores just, on them. <laughs> bring some bliss text and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they that is a good good tight shot of those big dental welts. dams. <laughs> Ladies, dental dams. Oh, Oh my gosh! I have so, to say, the makeup on this—the makeup on this show—is very good. It's very subtle. It is, and, uh, yeah. And Fran Drescher is immaculate. Her, her it's the, having filmed people with using makeup. The, the makeup that they used on her was excellent. She, did. Mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, quite quite a quite a way to end the the scene in the uh, in the banquet room at the at, at the hotel in Atlanta. <laughs> Yeah, and so while we since we were um, since this minute we're talking about the the offensive cover, it reminded me of I worked at this record shop in um, Sacramento, but it wasn't a. I was going to say it wasn't cool. The owners were not cool. <laughs> they were a couple of brothers who had owned like a a I think liquor barn um, previously, and they had sold it for X amount of million dollars and decided that they were going to open a place that was going to compete against Tower Records in Sacramento. And they were, they decided they were going to combine a video, a book and a record store all in one two-story building. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say they weren't cool and they, they were, a pain in my ass, but we won't get into that. But um, and they made a lot of really terrible decisions. But just as a side note, they m- they made great decisions on whoever was buying um, in the books and comic, especially graphic novel and comic section, because that's that was the early '90s, and I um, got into a lot of of the early '90s alt comics through that place because of whoever was buying there. Unfortunately, the place wasn't a good competition against Tower, so nobody was going there to buy that stuff. So I, I got some great deals on some uh, Drawn and Quarterly and Mouse and some, you know, oh, all sorts of really, really good stuff. But I, I worked upstairs in the record department and. Um, a friend of mine who was the manager there of the record department, he was so frustrated because he had worked at Tower and he had great taste, and but they really hampered his buying ability and stocking ability. And he just was only allowed to stock like the top 50 albums or something. Like there was no taste Easton. <laughs> simply just buying whatever was and, and and I I enjoyed it because it was you know you're I got to listen to music and I got to he he turned me on to some great music but I also remember just um and part of my homework was just reading the billboard charts so that was kind of fun but I do remember and I pulled these up here just visually I I remembered a couple of record album covers that were so hideous <laughs> <laughs> and disgusting that part of what I would do, my own little thing, you know, my own little rebellion was I'd walk around every shift I worked and hide these album covers because they were 
really ugly. So one of them was um, poison, open up and say, ah, and it's this weird, it says the description here is red skinned female demon with big hair and a bigger tongue. It's like this huge, the tongue takes up like the lower half of the album cover. So that was just visually unattractive, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But the other two that really chapped my hide, and I can see why, is Scorpion's Animal Magnetism. Do you guys recall that one at all? Uh, It's... No. It's yeah. um well the the album is um uh you're seeing a man uh from behind so his hand is in a, is in the back pocket of his jeans he's oh, holding here. a I'm, beer I'm, I'm looking at it now good okay. lord and there's a dog a doberman and a woman on her knees both looking up at him <laughs> so it's just oh. yeah talk about sexist it's definitely not sexy (laughs) and i remember just looking at and thinking how can this be an album you know how can this be i mean yeah there's nothing um you know bloody or gory like what i'm going to mention in the next one but it was certainly although i i have to say that i'm looking at the picture right now i I do not recall this album but she looks singularly unimpressed (laughs) her expression is like that's true "Mm -hmm." that's true yeah so, um, but the third one, and to me, and of course, there are uh, more hideous things out there. Of course, when I when I looked this stuff up, I saw a lot of, you know, hardcore, crazy album covers. But the, I specifically wanted to concentrate on the ones that were in my world at that time, um, not just the grossest album covers I could find <laughs> on the internet. But this one, I, I couldn't remember who it was by, so I simply Googled heavy metal album cover with crotch. And then, <laughs> and then you got pages and, and pages and pages up. of results. Yeah. So, yeah, so this was Wasp's album, co- album called um, Animal Bleep Like a Beast. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. it's I got the crotch with the... It's like a buzzsaw? Buzzsaw codpiece. Yeah. <laughs> and some, you know, very fake looking blood, but still definitely quite an image to imagine being at child's face height in a, you know, record bin. It was, it was um, pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm. So those were my little trip down memory lane. And I, and I, and I was also, it was an interesting job too, because I worked there when they were actually transitioning from record albums to CDs. So oh, yeah, the late '80s would have been right around that that time. Well, going back to to Scorpions, I, I would have thought that that they maybe would have been more sensitive or more uh, what we would say now is politically correct in regards to album covers because they had an early controversy with uh, their Virgin Killer right. album from from '76. The original cover for that was a a naked. I think 10-year-old, a, a girl way too young to be naked on, on the cover. If you're going to have anyone naked right. on the cover of your album, it shouldn't be a 10-year-old girl. And I think, though, though straight in, strangely, that the story on that is, I think that's that cover was suggested by the record company. It wasn't the band who originally came up with that concept. It was a, a photographer brought in by the record company. But uh, and that, And I don't believe that it was actually released with that cover. I think that's, you know, a case of one of those things that gets censored before it hits the market or 
better minds prevail. But so they had been through a cover controversy before. Of course, compared yeah. to well, that yeah. cover, I mean, this is nothing <laughs> visually, at least yeah, as maybe far they as thought, um, maybe they thought, oh yeah, maybe, maybe they had their their Ian Faith moment where it's well, you should have seen the cover they wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, sure. The woman's on the you know sitting you know kind of at attention, the same way you know right next to an obedient dog. In case anyone misses the metaphor, we've got the actual dog next to her, but at least she's clothed while she's doing it. You know, you, I can imagine the, 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 you know, the Nigel and David like conversation that happens that, uh, you know, oh, this could have been a lot worse. <laughs> I, I feel I'm, I am definitely dating myself on this. But when I think of controversial covers, the, the one that instantly comes to mind is the uh, the Beatles cover from Yesterday and Today. Yesterday which and probably, Today, yeah. Yeah, one of the most famous, the, the Butcher cover. I had a, uh, my friend Dave had a, uh, actually had a uh, taped over cover that he managed to steam off the front and uh mm-hmm. i think he at the time this was back in the you know like 1980 or so and i think he he made like 60 or 70 dollars selling the album because he had an actual butcher cover um although now i guess they're probably they're probably reprinting it with the butcher cover now because people want it. <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's just amazing I, I don't know the full story behind on the original one how far through the company, you know, the A&R people and, and the production people, nobody ever thought, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea that we put uh, these teen heartthrobs on, on a cover with, uh, <laughs> you know, dismembered uh, baby dolls and, and pieces of meat all over them. It just, <laughs> it, 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 yeah. It, it's just a stunning, you know, how did, how did they miss that one? I, <laughs> <laughs> you kind of wonder the, the yeah, the, the, and, the, the and, progress that goes through. And the idea that rather than taking all the records out and putting them in new new albums, that the easiest way, the easiest thing to do is just to put a an easily steamed off label over the top of the old album, just so you can save a little bit of cash getting it out. Yeah, I just it, it was a, it was a different world, different time. I guess yeah, the, the record the record business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was nobody there to say no. I guess was the the biggest thing about that. And. Didn't I didn't affect sales? I mean, I think a lot, not a lot, but I think some people actually bought the album just in the hopes that they would find a, a missing a missing cover. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was like stamp collecting almost. Totally. <laughs> well, except for the dismembered babies, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, are we ready to transition here to the last few seconds, or do you, does anybody have anything else for this? The, the the room. Uh, I'm, so I'm okay. I'm okay to getting out of that room. It's uh... <laughs> yeah. The only thing I just I thought it was the the interesting phrase that Bobby uses when she's talking about a, a new design concept. Mm-hmm. And what she's talking about is the cover. Right. You. It's it's not a design concept. It's just the album cover. You can just say cover. But uh, she's got her you know her her corporate speak. Yeah. Marketing mind, yeah, get, get the yeah, jargon just, in. Yeah, uh, just a little, a little nugget of 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 who is Bobby Fleckman? Who is this this woman? If it were today, she'd be saying "thinking outside the box." Or something. Yeah. yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we we segue from uh, I guess from this like meet and greet at the recording industry convention to Marty interviewing, and again, it's just or not again this. In this instance, it's not the whole band. It's just that core of of David and Nigel. And they're sitting, you know, maybe they're having some fish and chips uh, or something. And Nigel's saving his gum for later. But isn't he is- also chewing gum? 
Or is he eating? <laughs> what do you guys think? He must be eating, unless, but he's he's always chewing something. I assume it's not gum, just because he's got some gum. Yeah, they're they're in a. It's probably fish and chips or something that he's he's going yeah. going after on that. But right. and and it's pro- that's probably something that he's been doing since he was five years old, and and uh, you know first met David. The, the, uh, yeah. the they they they've probably had this little banter going on forever. It's like, why are you doing that? That's what I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're a little bit. It's a little bit of old married couple kind of thing where they've they've been together so long, and no matter how many times David sees Nigel do this, he's always going to say something like. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Oh, no, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to I was going to say that this scene, this little setup scene that Rob Reiner has with uh, with the two of them, it gives you an idea like when you see them together in the in in the present, you're saying why are they why are the two together? They seem to have nothing in common. They don't really seem to work together. But then it, this scene manages to extend how how close they are and how close they've always been and and the kind of you know, we, we kind of think of them as uh, doddering, drugged-out uh, rock stars, but you can see that spark, that creative spark that they had way back. I mean, I'm I'm talking mostly about what's going on in the, in the next minute, but this is this is sure, the initial sure. setup here that we're going to see in, in the next minute how this creative spark, you know, tied them together, and that they were actually a very very intelligent team that that knew under, understood what people wanted or, or they made music that made them happy and it was it was it was before all the bobby fleckmans showed up and all the ians and the sir dennis's that wrecked that pretty much wrecked what they were and for kind of forced them into the these publicity creatures that they are now where they have they get you know dragged around an entire continent to sell little pieces of vinyl uh instead of what they do best is making music that people enjoy and, and, and not, they make the music and then people come and enjoy it. Now they, they're chasing that, that mystical audience that they're, they're not sure what they want. And they think it has something to do with sex, drugs and rock and roll. So they roll out that kind of stuff, even though, well, I don't want, I don't want to get into, <laughs> the next minute, but, but I think that's, this is, this is a bit of exposition that's coming up here that really, in a nutshell, gives you who these two people really are and what, what's what's underneath all that glam rock stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you see it, we only get five, six seconds of it in this minute, but you can see physically how close they are Yeah, um, in, in this setting, Nigel and David. I mean, it looks like they're, they're literally rubbing shoulders. Yeah, Siamese twins. Yeah. I'm sure they've they've heard each other's stories so many times, but they don't, you know, they don't even think about it anymore. But this is this is who they are. It's a symbiotic relationship between the two of them that they they come up with great stuff, and they've always come up with great stuff. Hmm. Um, that they're both extremely broken doesn't really enter the picture for them. Yeah, all uh, good observations there. Definitely. Yeah. So I want to just jump in, and I'll take us away. So we we have a change of scenery at the end of of the minute. And I'll use that to segue into uh, Jim. I believe you have a story about about some Spinal Tap um, on location stuff. Yeah, uh, they actually one of these brief scenes was filmed in Austin. The uh, there's an airport scene, and uh, that was filmed at what was then known as the Robert Mueller Robert Mueller Airport. Robert Mueller was the mayor of Austin at the time that the airport was built, and he brought he brought the first commercial airport to Austin. Uh, it was on the east side of town for uh, folks listening in uh, just east of I-35 was a, a very, very small airport. And there was no place for it to grow. It was kind of like 
like LaGuardia is, or more like Meg's Field was in Chicago. It's just, it's very small, but people kept using it and using it. And it became a very overused uh, airport. The uh, The main runway was less than a mile long, and they were landing DC-10s on it. So it <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember getting on a plane uh, back during this time period, uh, flying from Dallas to Austin, and the plane that I got on was a was a DC-10. And I I couldn't, I, like, how are they going to land this in Austin? And <laughs> The the fellow that was flying the plane, uh, he must have been a Navy aviator because we came down like a carrier landing. He put it down on one end of the runway and he just turned all the engines backwards and and we stopped at the at the far gate on the opposite side of the runway. Um, but it was very convenient because you were you, you suddenly found yourself near downtown Austin. Uh, nowadays, if you go in, they've they've rebuilt the uh, Bergstrom Air Force Base into the Bergstrom Austin. Uh, Airport and it's fantastic. You know, it, they, I saw the space shuttle land there once in a, on the back of a seven forty seven, and you know they have a, they had this enormous air base, air air force base at the at the end of town. So closing Mueller Airport and moving stuff down down south of town was uh, was probably the best thing that happened to Austin for transportation in years. But I, I remember seeing portion of uh, Austin Airport where they were filming this at. They were kind of filming it at the north end of the airport where there were mostly like commuter planes. And they had that blocked off for several days while they were while they were shooting there. It was just I saw a bunch of people wearing long wigs, and one of them might have been Michael McKean, and one of them might have been Chris, uh, Christopher Guest, but I, I I wasn't close enough to see that. But it's just it's interesting thinking that I was seeing all this while I, I didn't I didn't know what the movie was. It was a movie that was being done by Rob Reiner. I, that, that's all I knew about it at the time. And then mm. when it came out, yeah. I was like, oh, that must have been that Rob Reiner movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's just funny seeing later on in this movie we'll see scenes that are set in the airport, and it's just it's just funny seeing the old Mueller Airport because right now that that is now like an industrial park and a bunch of uh, luxury condos, and it's a just a different different world. It's all gone, so they they can't reshoot it at least in that that part mm-hmm. of thing. But that was uh, that was my touch with my direct touch with Spinal Tap. <laughs> they, they they tapped into Austin, I guess. <laughs> uh, but it's uh it's it's fun seeing and it's fun seeing this because it, it brings me back to that time and a, and a place. And uh, I had I had a lot of good times in Austin, and uh, I hope oh, I yeah. hope they did too. Back when I hate sounding like the old man, but. Austin at the time was it was a little it was a sleepy little town. It had a lot of you know, a lot of music, a lot of filmmaking going on, but it wasn't. It, it's kind of turned into L.A. now, and it's just a different. It's a different world. There's so many people going going through. There's so much. It's a it's a celebrity hangout, and uh, it's just a di- different world. I mean, it's still a it's still a pleasant place to go to. It's a lot of fun to be there, but it's just a different kind of fun. It's a big big city fun instead of a small town fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's my that's my Austin and and Spinal Tap story. I, All right. I well, do want to nit. I, I do want to nitpick before I leave this minute. I, I, sure. I, I was talking about this earlier that uh, this is supposed to be taking place, I guess, in Atlanta or somewhere between Atlanta and Memphis. That's that's where we're we're generally at. But as we're gonna, yeah. as we're sitting in this uh, fish and chips place, uh, slightly into the next few seconds of the next minute, you can see the sign in the back there at the end of this minute is a, a sign for H Salt, which is a an excellent fast food fish restaurant. Unfortunately, it's only available in California. So I think if they had just shot around that a little bit, I would have been okay with it. But in my OCD little mind, it's like, that's not, that's not supposed to be there. This is California. <laughs> but, you know, you shoot where you can. And it's, that's what uh, Rob Reiner did with this. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, it, it didn't wreck the film for me. Just to let you know. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. <laughs> good. All right. Glad to that. Wow. Well, this has been a fantastic couple of minutes. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me here uh, to talk about all this. It's uh, it's a fun movie. It's a fascinating movie. I mean, just it, you can t- you can take it apart like we're doing to the last frame, 
but uh, just as a as a popcorn movie and sit and sit and laugh about a movie, this is a this is a great one to to pull out of the DVD rack and say, yeah, let's watch this tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Agree. Ah, <sighs> well, yeah, I think that's a good good time to maybe start wrapping things up, unless anybody has anything else. I think I think we've covered it well. All right. Yeah. Great. We hope you enjoyed the 17th episode of Spinal Tap Minute. So we're 17 minutes in and quite a few minutes to go. Um, Just a reminder, you can find us at SpinalTapMinute.com. And if you go there, you can find out how to subscribe. And of course, you can also follow all of our social links, whatever you're into, Twitter or Instagram. Um, You can find Sean over manning our Facebook group that he'll tell tell you a little bit more about. Um, I'll be hanging out over at the Spinal Tap Minute Groupies Lounge on Facebook. So swing on by and and join the conversation there. Mr. Jim O'Kane, you know, folks want to hear more more from you. Where can they go? Where can they find you? Well, you can hear you can hear my back catalog, which consists of the Airport Minute, which uh, of which you can also hear Sean on uh, Minute One Ten. I think was. Yeah. where he, he came in. So uh, drop by there. But listen to the other uh, 136 minutes that are out there, too. It's, it's always a lot of fun. And uh, we, we talk way too much about a movie that probably <laughs> probably you haven't seen. If, uh, but it's, it's, a great, it's a great introduction to the world of Burt Lancaster and uh, Dean Martin and Jacqueline Bissett and all kinds of uh, untoward things happening on an airplane. It's the granddaddy of all disaster films, the 1970 movie Airport. Um, that's complete. And uh, if you'd like to hear some new stuff that's coming up, uh, we're also um, doing the Rocketeer Minute, which is a more recent film, the 1991 uh, Walt Disney movie, The Rocketeer, directed by Joe Johnson, who also did Captain America. So if you like Captain America, you probably would like The Rocketeer as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my co-host is a fellow named Hal Bryant, who is the uh, head of social media for the Experimental Aircraft Association in Oshkosh. So wow. he, know, he knows everything there is to know about airplanes. So he talks a lot about airplanes, and I talk a lot about movies. So between the two of us, we hope to keep you entertained. So j- drop by. Uh, uh, again, you can uh, see the back catalog at airportminute.com and the brand new show, The Rocketeer Minute, over there at rocketeerminute.com. And we're also available on Twitter and Facebook and all that jazz. So just type it in Google and you'll find us. <laughs> Yeah. Sweet. I recommend those. Like, but you guys, you guys are fascinating. I'm, I am already subscribed, so uh, I expect to hear awesome. hear you while I'm driving around town. But uh, thank you again so much for having me on. All yeah, right. thank you so much. It was really fun to talk tap with you. Yeah, th- thanks for joining us, and for all you folks out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. Until next time, and so say all of us. Tap, tap, tap into, into America. America. Good one, guys. <laughs>